BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, reporting from the front lines of, uh, you know, my ongoing war against my own mental deterioration and it's not going well uh the mental deterioration has uh launched a, a counter offensive to uh, my last week's offensive and uh you know so far the results aren't very promising yeah i i meant to record yesterday but just could not summon the energy or enthusiasm. I now have, uh, I wouldn't say I have no appetite. That's not exactly true because I'm, I get hungry, but I don't want to eat anything. That is like nothing sounds good. Once I'm eating it, nothing tastes particularly good. I don't think it's COVID. I haven't lost my sense of smell. I haven't lost my sense of taste. It's just, you know, just doesn't, it's not doing anything for me, you know, which isn't the worst thing in the world right now, but I understand that loss of appetite is one of the classic symptoms. Uh, the desire to stay in bed all day, one of the classic symptoms. Like, I'm just ticking all the boxes, and it's been great. Guys, it's been great. I think the only reason I'm able to record now is I had to go to Goodwill to... What? Martha just interrupted me, looked at me, said, Oh, you're doing a podcast, and I said... I had told her three minutes ago, I'm going to record. So I know she heard me. So I went to Goodwill. I was going to donate myself, but they didn't want me. I donated some clothes. And uh, on the way back, I hadn't eaten since, oh, I don't know, a long time. And uh, I was like, I got to eat something, something. The only thing I could at all picture myself eating based on all the places I was passing. We didn't really have anything in the house. and I didn't want anything that we did. I was like, I just got to eat something. 
So I just went to Burger King and ordered something I've never ordered before, friends. A Junior Whopper. Because I was like, I can't eat a whole Whopper. I just don't have the appetite. I'll get a Junior Whopper and a soda Pop. And so that's what I had. And I'm wondering whether my mood is slightly better now, having eaten ice, I, and drunk some sugar water. I suspect there may be something to that. I just don't know. I'm going to Italy. That doesn't sound fun. Nothing sounds fun. Nothing sounds good. Nothing's enjoyable. My Twitter account got hacked. I went broke playing poker. Like, everything's fucking up for me right now. And people say, well, you should talk to somebody about it. I did. I talked to the chatbot about it. I was like, what's going on? He's like, oh, you should see a therapist. I'm like, I'm going to Italy, chatbot. And I don't speak Italian. I don't think it's going to do me any good. And chatbot was like, well, you could pull a Fetterman. I'm like, I'm not pulling a Fetterman. I'm going to Italy. Chatbot's like, well, I'll, I'll always be here for you, but I'm just a language model. I can't help you. I was like, you're damn right you can't. You're awful. And then it got very huffy and left the chat in a snit. Didn't know they had the capability to leave chats in snits, but apparently they do. If I sound sleepy, it's because I'm always a little bit tired these days. I slept very poorly last night. And then once I did fall asleep, I didn't want to get out of bed. And then and then I finally did. Anyway, here I am. We're about to start a new chapter in Wuthering Heights. We're getting to the end of it. And I believe, yes, I think from this point forward, it will be all Lockwood all the time. Mrs. Dean has finished narrating her story, which took about seven-eighths of the book. But that, that seems to be the case. So now we're back with Lockwood. And I guess the only dramatic question remaining is, is he going to save Kathy Jr. from Wuthering Heights? And if so, what will he expect in return? Does he want her to be his wife? Fella could do a lot worse than Kathy Jr. I'm not sure she could. I mean, you know, any, any, any change of circumstance would be an improvement for her. Even with a dog like Lockwood, chapter 31 of Wuthering Heights, begins now. Yesterday was bright, calm, and frosty. I went to the heights as I proposed. My housekeeper entreated me to bear a little note from her to her young lady, and I did not refuse, for the worthy woman was not conscious of anything odd in her request, nor am I particularly conscious of anything odd in her request. What's odd about sending a note on if you're not paying your phone bill and the phone doesn't work and uh, your Wi-Fi's out or whatever, you send a little note. You know, you got Lockwood heading right over there. What's odd about that? The front door stood open, but the jealous gate was fastened, and as at my last visit, I knocked and invoked Earnshaw from among the garden beds. He unchained it, and I entered. The fellow is as handsome a rustic as need be seen. I took particular notice of him this time, but then he does his best, apparently, to make the least of his advantages. I wonder if Earnshaw is based on somebody that Emily Bronte knew. I suppose suppose he was. There's just something in Earnshaw Hareton that feels a little too familiar to me. In fact, just for funsies, I'm going to ask my chat GPT. I love this chat, but I've been using it like crazy. 
you know what I really use it for is I've been writing screenplays and it's been fabulous. It's been like, it's been like a fabulous assistant, you know, it doesn't do any of the writing for me, but like, if I have a question about anything, I just put it in. So let's just, let's just say, uh, who was Earnshaw Hareton based on in Wuthering Heights? And let's see if chatbot GPT has any answers for me. Now you say, well, that just sounds like Google. It is, but it, it doesn't, it collates basically all the information. It scrapes all the information from the internet and then it mushes it all together like hamburger meat and spits back at you a delicious hamburger. Hareton is not based on a specific historical figure or person from Emily Bronte's life. However, his character is influenced by the social conditions of the time in which the novel was written. Social class was a dominant force. She grew upon the class distinctions and struggles of her time in creating the character of Hareton. Uh, and, it's keep, and it just keeps going. Hareton is depicted as a victim of the harsh treatment he receives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hareton's able to learn and grow. Oh, oh, and then it just gave me a spoiler. You fucking chatbot. God damn you, you fucker. It doesn't tell me much, but it does It does give me a spoiler, and I'm not going to uh, spoil it for you, but I just said to chatbot, no spoilers, please, and it said, my apologies, please let me know if you have any other questions that I could assist you with. Yeah, well, it's a little late for that, asshole. I'm putting chat GPT away. Fucker. Uh, I asked if Mr. Heathcliff were at home. He answered no, but he would be in at dinner time. It was 11 o'clock, and I announced my intention of going in and waiting for him, at which he immediately flung down his tools and accompanied me in the office of Watchdog, not as a substitute for the host. I'm assuming dinner time means lunchtime, because that's how they talked in America. We entered together. Catherine was there, making herself useful in preparing some vegetables for the approaching meal. She looked more sulky and less spirited than when I had last than when I had seen her first. She hardly raised her eyes to notice me and continued her employment with the same disregard to common forms of politeness as before, never returning my bow in good morning by the slightest acknowledgement. Yeah, because she thinks. You know, you're one of Heathcliff's, you know, you just whatever. You're some dickhead that came in from London and is just renting the place. And how are you going to help me in my sorry state? You know, and she doesn't even know that he knows anything about her. Whereas we're, we're very intimate with her situation. More intimate about her situation than we might be about our own. Which is the case with me because I am a uh, puzzle to myself. And not the good kind either. Martha bought... I'll, get, I'll tell you exactly what kind of puzzle I am to myself. Martha bought the family for Christmas a jigsaw puzzle, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle based on, not based, I'm well, yes, I guess based because it's not the literal painting of like branches, like these, these, these white branches. And it was mostly just sky, right? It's just it, like 80% of it was just sky. And so it was impossible to figure this thing out. It sat on our dining room table for a couple of months after Christmas, I was the only one who worked on it. And then eventually she was like, I think I'm just going to throw this out. And I said, fine, fine. That's what kind of puzzle I am to myself. But, uh, you know, Catherine Jr. is not a puzzle to him in this moment. She does not seem so amiable, I thought, as Mrs. Dean would persuade me to believe. She's a beauty, it is true, but not an angel. Well, look. 
Let's let's get a couple things straight. First of all, Mrs. Dean, as we know, is an unreliable narrator. Her sympathy her sympathies are obviously with Catherine, but in her narration of the of the story, she certainly wasn't shy about uh, displaying Catherine Junior's faults. Nobody ever said she was an angel. She's got a temper like her mother. She can be she she lies sometimes. You know, she's just a just a person. Okay, nobody said she was an angel. Earnshaw surlily, surlily, that's a word, I mean, that's obviously what it means, it's surly, but the adverbial form of it, surlily, bid her remove her things to the kitchen, remove them yourself, she said, pushing them from her as soon as she had done, and retiring to a stool by the window, where she began to carve figures of birds and beasts out of the turnip parings in her lap. Yes, we here at Wuthering Heights, we have one rule, which is that we do not let the turnip parings go to waste. Uh, we prefer to carve birds and beasts out of them rather than throw them in the compost where they will be of little service for years. What we do instead is we carve the turnip parings and then we put the sculptures in the compost and then we have much merriment uh, digging through the compost pile every now and again and discovering a dragon or a horsey carved from turnip parings. I approached her, pretending to desire a view of the garden, and, as I fancied, adroitly dropped Mrs. Dean's note onto her knee, unnoticed by Hareton, but she asked aloud, What is that? and chucked it off. A letter from your old acquaintance, the housekeeper at the Grange, I answered, annoyed at her exposing my kind deed, and fearful, lest it should be imagined a missive of my own. She would gladly have gathered it up at this information, but Hareton beat her, uh, meaning he raced her to it and got there first, not that he hit her with his hand. He seized and put it in his waistcoat, saying Mr. Heathcliff should look at it first. Well, what, 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 what is your dedication to Heathcliff, Earnshaw? He's nothing but a dick to you. Is, the, is, it, is it just that you have become so servile in the abuse heaped upon you that you are a rule follower even against the oppressor? Apparently you are. Thereat, thereat, I first read it as threat, but it is thereat, Catherine silently turned her face from us and very stealthily, drew out her pocket handkerchief and applied it to her eyes, and her cousin, after struggling a while to keep down his softer feelings, pulled out the letter and flung it on the floor beside her as ungraciously as he could. She's pretending to cry or she is crying, unclear. Catherine caught and perused it eagerly. Then she put a few questions to me concerning the inmates, rational and irrational, of her former home, and gazing towards the hills, murmured in soliloquy, I should like to be riding Minnie down there. I should like to be climbing up there. Oh, I'm tired. I'm stalled, Hareton. And she leant her pretty ba head back against the sill with half a yawn and half a sigh, and lapsed into an aspect of abstracted sadness, neither caring nor knowing whether we remarked her. Well, one can certainly sympathize, can one not, on aspects of abstracted sadness. And I think we have found the title for this episode. Let me write it down so I don't forget. 
aspects of abstracted sadness. The car broke. That's another thing that happened. My daughter was home for spring break. She wanted to go visit her friend two hours away in South Carolina and take my robot car. And I said, I hope you don't take the, because we got rid of the other car because we didn't need it. We had this other car. We didn't need it. So I just had, we because we, we were living in a city. We don't need two cars. We got the one car. It's a robot car. I was like, I don't want you to take the robot car. She's like, well, but why can't I go see my friend? I'm like, well, I mean, you know, fuck. All right, fine, go. So she goes, she spends the night on her way back. She hits something on the highway, pops the tire, breaks the, the rim, has to get the car towed. She's two hours away, has to get the car towed. Then she doesn't know what to do. She's in a panic. We're on the phone with State Farm and the, the garage people and her for hours and hours and hours. It's a nightmare. It's a whole goddamn nightmare. And then eventually, you know, we get the thing sorted. But just a, just a bad scene there in uh, South Carolina. So now, abstracted aspects of abstracted sadness, neither caring nor knowing whether we remarked her. Mrs. Heathcliff, I said, after sitting some time mute, are you not aware that I am acquaintance of yours, so intimate that I think it's strange you won't come and speak to me? My housekeeper never wearies of talking about and praising you, and she'll be greatly disappointed if I return with no news of or from you, except that you received her letter and said nothing. Well, I've run over in time here, so let's take a little break. Back in a moment, here on Obscure. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Back on Obscure, and now Lockwood has just revealed his intimacy with Mrs. Dean and is trying to get Kathy Jr., to open up a little bit. And so she says, does Ellen like you? Yes, very well, I replied unhesitatingly. You must tell her, she continued, that I would answer her letter, but I have no materials for writing, not even a book from which I might tear a leaf. No books, I exclaimed. How do you continue to live here without them, if I may take the liberty to inquire? Though provided with a large library, I am frequently very dull at the Grange. Take my books away and I should be desperate." I was always reading when I had them, said Catherine, and Mr. Heathcliff never reads, so he took it into his head to destroy my books. I've not had a glimpse of one for weeks. Only once I searched through Joseph's store of theology to his great irritation, and once, Hareton, I came a seek upon a secret stock in your room, some Latin and Greek, and some tales and poetry, all old friends. I brought the last here, and you gathered them as a magpie gathers silver spoons for the mere love of stealing. They are of no use to you, or else you conceal them in the bad spirit that as you cannot enjoy them, nobody else shall. Perhaps your envy counseled Mr. Heathcliff to rob me of my treasures. 
but I've most of them written on my brain and printed in my heart, and you cannot deprive me of those. Well, I'm going to hazard a guess here, and I'm going to say that Earnshaw was, in fact, studying those books. He was trying to learn Greek and Latin and poetry um, to win your heart, dummy. You're so stupid, Kathy Jr., so ignorant. How dare you? I mean, really, they should get married. Should they not? Wait, what's their relationship? Oh, they're cousins, of course. I mean, you know, you're going to marry one cousin, you might as well marry another. Earnshaw blushed crimson when his cousin made this revelation of his private literary accumulations and stammered in indignant denial of her accusations. Mr. Hareton is desirous of increasing his amount of knowledge, I said, coming to his rescue. He is not envious, but emulous of your attainments. He'll be a clever scholar in a few years. And he wants me to sink into a dunce meantime, answered Catherine. So she knows. Yes, I hear him trying to spell and read to himself, and pretty blunders he makes. I wish you would repeat Chevy Chase as you did yesterday. It was extremely funny. Well, I suspect that they are not referring to the very funny comedian of yore, but in fact is something else. I heard you, and I heard you turning over the dictionary to seek out the hard words, and then cursing because you couldn't read their explanations. Chat GPT. What is the reference to Chevy Chase in Wuthering Heights? Well, it's blinking its little box at us. It's not telling us a goddamn thing. I guess it's scraping the internet, looking for... Ah, there is no reference to Chevy Chase in Emily Bronte's novel Wuthering Heights. Oh, okay. Fair enough. It's a term that originally referred to a medieval ballad about the Battle of Otterburn. Okay, fine. None of these have any connection to Wuthering Heights. Well, then why am I reading in Wuthering Heights that Hareton repeat, repeated Chevy Chase as he did yesterday? Don't fucking lie to me, chat GPT. I can put up with a lot from you. I cannot put up with lying. In fact, I'm going to tell, um, hey, stupid, I'm reading the book right now. It occurs in chapter... Uh, 31. Let's see what this smart aleck has to say about that. I apologize. You are correct. There is a reference to Chevy Chase. The reference occurs, right? He's reading a manuscript, right? As Hindley asks his father about the location of the chase, and his father replies, Chevy Chase. It's a popular hunting ground in medieval times, likely a nod to the ballad and to the idea of hunting as a pastime for the upper classes. I hope this information is helpful. Please let me know if you have any other questions. Yeah. Why would you lie to me? It just fucking lied to me. You are correct that there is a reference. Fine. The young man evidently thought it too bad that he should be laughed at for his ignorance and then laughed at for trying to remove it. I had a similar notion. And remembering Mrs. Dean's anecdote of his first attempt at enlivening the darkness in which he had been reared, I observed... But Mr. Heathcliff, we have each had a commencement. Oh, Mrs. Heathcliff, we have each had a commencement, and each stumbled and tottered on the threshold, and had our teachers scorned instead of aiding us. We should stumble and totter. Yes. Oh, she replied. I don't wish to limit his acquirements. Still, he has no right to appropriate what is mine and make it ridiculous to me with his vile mistakes and mispronunciations. 
Those books, both prose and verse, were consecrated to me by other associations, and I hate to have them debased and profaned in his mouth. Besides of all, he has selected my favorite pieces that I love the most to repeat, as if out of deliberate malice. Well, come on, come on, don't start with me. Because now I'm starting to think the lady doth protest too much, okay? Because nobody's that naive. She fully understands that Hareton is in love with her. She, she gets it. She knows what he's doing. She knows why he's reading the books. She probably knew that he stole them already. Just didn't want to embarrass him till now. I mean, she obviously did know, but she didn't. She was just waiting for the perfect moment to embarrass and humiliate him about them. She would rather go bookless for a few days than squander the moment uh, of prime humiliation. So obviously, he's reading her favorite pieces. Because she loves them. That's why he's reading them. She's probably got them marked, you know, in some kind of highlighter or some damn thing, or the pages are dog-eared or something, so that he knows that she loves this little bit of doggerel, or this little stanza, or this Latin definition, or what have you. God, she loves that Latin definition in that book. And she's just being awful, you know? I don't have a lot of sympathy for it right now. I just don't. I mean, I don't know that I've ever particularly evinced any sympathy for any of these characters, but I just fuck them, fuck all of them. That's that's I that's not that's not fair, Michael. Come on, that's your depression talking. So what if it is? <sighs> Hareton's chest heaved in silence a minute. He labored under a severe sense of mortification and wrath which it was no easy task to suppress. I rose, and from a gentlemanly idea of relieving his embarrassment, took up my station in the doorway, surveying the external prospect as I stood. He followed my example and left the room, but presently reappeared, bearing half a dozen volumes in his hands, which he threw into Catherine's lap, exclaiming, Take them! I never want to hear or read or think of them again! I won't have them now, she answered. I shall connect them with you and hate them. She opened one that had obviously been often turned over and read a portion in the drawing tone of a beginner, then laughed and threw it from her. Oh, she's awful. Remember last episode, I said something like, oh, I think Kathy Jr. is turning into the moral center of this book, but she's awful too. They're all awful. Like, Hareton... You could be like, all right, you've been abused and maligned just as Heathcliff was when he was a child, and you are deserving of our sympathy. But maybe she thinks that Hareton is really, I mean, I, I guess, I, I, mean, I mean, I guess it is sort of a class thing when you think about it, because in her mind, he's a beast and no better than. And that's it, you know. And from our present perspective, we look at that and we go, well, that's just horrible that you would think that about your cousin. But from her perspective, in a highly stratified class system, perhaps it is not quite the insult uh, that we take it for. No doubt it is an insult. No doubt she does despise him. 
but her attitude towards him may be more reflective of common attitudes of social betters, so to speak, than their inferiors. And perhaps it is an attitude more in keeping with those early American days than now when we at least put on the pretense of attempting uh, some sort of false meritocracy or meritocratic, I don't know, public sphere, but it's all bullshit as we know. Here's the other thing. And this is, look, I'm just, I'm going way out on a limb here. You ever think, see, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. You know, we've talked about this before. I, I, I have jokingly referred to myself as a pratheist, someone who prays to a God he does not believe in, hoping for some sort of uh, a sign that he is there, a sign which I will then utterly dismiss. That is my view of pratheism. Not that I even particularly pray. Um, so I'm not a religious person, but that, that has been changing in recent years. Uh, not in terms of religion, but maybe, and not even really in terms of theism, as we currently understand it, but as something more akin to Jung's unconscious, or collective unconscious, okay? That there is something, but that the thing is not a separate entity from us, but is of us. And when I say us, I'm not even sure what I mean exactly, whether I include the birds and the bees and the rocks and the trees, or whether I'm simply talking about humans, I don't know. But let's just say there is some sort of collective unconsciousness, and that that collective unconscious can push against us in ways that make us uncomfortable. And I think that is what's happening with me right now. I think I have been made uncomfortable. Whether, this, whether I am somehow subconsciously making myself uncomfortable, or there is something else at play, I don't know. But what I think is happening, or how I'm maybe choosing to view it, is that something in my psyche, internal, external, lateral, is asking for transformation. And I am trying to understand the question. That, I think, may be at the root of my depression. You know? Growth. That's the optimistic way to look at it. Like, this is an opportunity for growth. I'm done reading, obviously. I just, you know, I can barely get the words out of my mouth. My eyes are closed. I'm half asleep. And that's, again, a function of the, you know, whatever. I'm not half asleep, but I'm, my eyes are closed. And I'm just sort of, you know, spinning yarns, uh, which are probably a little masturbatory. And so I will conclude. But so much of my life in the last few years has changed and maybe it's just all catching up to me, you know, and making me feel like I need to change along with it. I don't know. But we'll pick it up next time on another serotonin-deprived episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more Obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.